This is Daniel Figel, and you're listening to our special Saturday AI Futures series here in the AI and Business Podcast, where we cover the farther future implications of artificial intelligence. And this is episode 12 of 12 of our series on AI governance. Our final interviewee is Dr. Hugo de Garris. He's the former head of the Artificial Brain Lab at CMN University in China. He now resides in Australia. He wrote a paper that I believe was the cover story for AI Magazine in some month of 1989. I think it was November of 1989 called What If AI Succeeds? And in this paper, he outlines what he believes will be great international conflict around super intelligent AI systems. Once we can develop genuinely strong AI, how society and how nations will bifurcate around how this technology should be wielded, around who has the power over it, and about what the relation of man and machine should be when machines become vastly more powerful. So we speak a little bit about what that could look like in the near term, but then what some of the considerations will be at an international level in the long term around how we need to relate to these technologies as they become astronomically more capable and what it could look like to be able to govern them well potentially, although it's an awful tall order. This is a fellow who's been thinking about this for over 30 years. There's hardly anybody that's been thinking about AI governance as it pertains to international conflict for that long, and someone with a very strong applied maths and computer science background, and someone who's also really influenced my thought when it comes to my own opinions and perspectives on what are the, the grand concerns of the next three to four decades. Hugo de Garris is someone who's really molded some of my perspectives, and this was my first time ever speaking with him. We spoke for something like four or five hours, oddly enough, from opposite corners of the world. This interview is one tiny snippet of that very long conversation. But it's the most focused one on the topic of this interview series. So I, I let him know we wanted to carve out a little time specifically for governance. And that's what we've done for you here in this final episode. This is someone I really learned a lot from. This is a conversation I really enjoyed. And I hope for you it'll be a great cap off to this series on AI governance. I'd mentioned that we were going to be starting with the early concerns of governing AI in the near term and then going all the way to the long term. Well, Ben Gertzel, our last episode, episode 11 of 12, and Hugo de Garris, 12 of 12, uh, these are the long-term thinkers in this space, and so honored to have both of them. Without further ado, this is Hugo de Garris on the special AI Futures series. Let's roll right in. So, Hugo, I want to speak with you a little bit first about the idea of global governance of artificial intelligence. If we look ahead, I think there's a version of the world where each sort of country figures out how they want to handle and govern and regulate AI, and there's another version where maybe we need some international unity there. How do you think about the problem and sort of what side of the fence are you on here? I think the first problem is just education and an increase in awareness of what the problem is. Uh, Virtually all intelligent people should be aware that longer term, these machines have the potential to become hugely more intelligent than we are. I think it would be dangerous for people to forget that longer term reality, that the, the shorter term problems, uh, for example, uh, as machines become smarter, then the employability of human beings becomes less and less. You know, eventually, as the IQ gap between human-level intelligence and machine-level intelligence, as that gap uh, each year you know, closes, 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 as, as it gets seriously close, the, the, the machines uh, almost as intelligent as human beings, then there'll very probably be a, a threshold level of human intelligence necessary to be employable. And so the percentage of people who are intellectually unemployable 
will just rise and rise. And that's going to create enormous problems of governments. I see almost inevitably the need for UBI, universal basic yeah. income. Governments will just have to hand out money so people can buy food so that there's not a revolution. I mean, if they're going to starve, there'll be a revolution. I mean, the governments can't afford that. So governments will need to start thinking about that. But what really concerns me is uh, what happens when the what I call the species dominance debate uh, really starts raging, and and it's within the lifetime. I mean, given the timing, you know, what what time frame are we talking about? There have been quite a lot of surveys taken lately about uh, when will machines reach human level intelligence? You know, these questions posed uh, amongst the experts, you know, the the AI, yep. and especially the AGI, that's General. artificial general intelligence so these are machines that act like humans so they can solve all kinds of different problems they're not specialized or narrow ai artificial yeah. like, like like google is very narrow it's about how do you search on huge databases intelligently or self-driving cars these are all examples of narrow artificial intelligence but a general artificial intelligence an agi it would be sort of more human it could, it could solve lots of problems so, so as AGI becomes more and more real, as, as the IQ gap closes, then uh, I, I see the governance problem will be discussed hugely more. Uh, politicians will become more aware of the problem. They'll, they'll realise that, that it's probably true that uh, what I call the species dominance issue, in other words, who or what, what being machines, who or what should be dominant species this this century and i see that question absolutely dominating our global politics this century so politicians will get in the act and they'll need to start thinking hard about you know just what is humanity going to do as this iq gap closes and that's a huge issue clearly yeah that's that's going to be i guess a non-provincial issue right like kind of like global warming or nukes or something it's it's not an issue for denmark and for you know germany or something this is a this is an issue for uh, the species writ large, humanity writ large. With that being said, you know, a lot of these polls, Bostrom ran a pretty big poll a while ago. We had actually done one three or four years back around uh, reaching AGI. 2060, 2065 range seems to be when a lot of folks that are in the field suspect. Now, of course, they could be wrong. It could be sooner. Of course, they could be wrong. It could be much later. Do you believe that in order for the kind of global governance conversation to kick in at all, we're going to have to really see that gap close. In other words, people will have to be much more amazed by what AI is capable of before anybody's going to think that international governance is necessary. Or do you think there is a way to start the conversation even before that much more amazing wave of AI comes about? Well, you, you asked me to predict the future. I probably, just my own view, in the next decade or two, uh, I think uh, at the level of politics, uh, at least two major issues that, that AI will impact heavily on. One is employment, that we talked a little bit about. Another one is income distribution. The, you know, the 1%, the 99%, there, there are a lot of books, a flood of books coming out lately in economics on this issue. And I see as machines get smarter and smarter, that, that difference, that polarity of you know, the 99 poorer versus the 1% getting super rich, that polarity is only going to worsen. So... Uh, we need a new economic system that's much fairer, and a lot of people are looking towards socialism. Like, if, if you're going to hand out money, if it's going to be a UBI, well, <laughs> how much more socialist can you get than that? Pretty well. But I, I see that as I see the UBI as almost inevitable because uh, we're seeing the evidence already that the threshold 
employability, you know, that minimum human level IQ necessary, needed to be employable, that minimum uh, IQ level keeps rising. Yep. Doctors now, lawyers are, are starting to be replaced by, by intelligent machines as, as they uh, do a better job at uh, diagnosing people. I mean, they, they, they have access to you know, all the world's journals and they can go hunting down yep. 100,000 <laughs> review articles on a particular topic. You know, humans can't compete. So, so even uh, the upper middle class is going to be hit by the rise of AGI, and and uh, you know AGI as a research field is blossoming uh, nowadays. That you know, so employment and income distribution, you know, fa- the questions of fairness, fairness that yeah. lots of economists now are, are worrying about, and and that that means a change in the economic system, and that 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 has profound political consequences. So, so I see politicians getting involved in these two. Shorter, rel- yeah, relatively, relatively shorter, shorter term. term, yeah, and not forgetting at the back of their minds that these are sort of lead-ins to the much bigger question of. Uh, I can express it. I can express the issue in four words as a question. Okay. Yeah, should humanity build Artelex? Uh, the word Artelex, my word for a massively godlike artificial intelligence that, yeah. that that's. Mental abilities are just way off the charts, you know, trillions of trillions of times above the human level. That issue sooner or later, and I believe this century, I believe it will be like within the lifetimes of most of your young uh, followers, uh, readers and viewers, they will see this issue take center stage on the world political stage. You see that coming. But I don't see it becoming dominant, you know, really powerful for a couple of decades, uh, see these other issues, you know, the more immediate yep. yeah. employment, uh, income distribution, fairness, see, see those issues dominating, uh, you know, in the connection between AGI and politics, uh, I see those two dominating over the next decade or two. Interestingly enough, in our poll uh, of artificial intelligence researchers, this is back in 2015, around near term, in, in other words, next 20 year AI risks. And this was five years ago, the employment and economic concerns were really the predominant risk that most AI folks believe was the case. It sounds like you're sort of in the same boat there. I think there's a lot of people who would agree. Do you believe that that will, you talked about a new economic system, which sounds like it might be leaning more global. It seems to me like global governance around AI, it might be possible that, okay, well, wealth is starting to concentrate in these big tech cities and these people that are running these tech companies or know how to code or what have you, these certain different skill sets or, or general intelligence levels, whatever the case may be. We need a system that can equitably distribute. It doesn't seem like if the US, you know, if Bernie Sanders was elected or something, that necessarily that would force other countries to govern AI in a similar way. In terms of having an interconnected sort of way of thinking about and governing and regulating and, and kind of having transparency or steering around AI globally, would the economic stuff get us there or would that just sort of spin as their own wheels within individual countries? Say Bernie does get in. Uh, I don't see that happening. But yeah, so, let's say just say it happens, sure. Say he does and he brings in this kind of stuff. I, I can imagine that that will have a strong influence on a lot of other countries but, but I see the main driver pushing in favor of the UBI, universal basic income. In other words, money that the government just gives to people, you know, a, a minimum income so they can stay alive, they can buy food and you know, have a certain amount of luxuries. I see that as uh, being driven by technology. Virtually all the advanced countries will be more or less forced to do it simply because uh, the technology keeps increasing and, and the employability of human beings 
uh, keeps going down because you need to be smarter and smarter to be employable. So I see the, the technology making the UBI pretty well inevitable, but you know, there'll be also the intellectual influence, the political influence from if major countries do it, that will impact. Uh, you know, a lot of people in you know, small countries will say, oh, well, America's doing it or Russia's yep, doing yep. it. Or yeah, China's yeah. thinking about it. You know, yeah. That'll, that'll There's be some, an influence. Some peer pressure there for sure. There's another major sort of a major development going on in parallel with the technologies, partly technology-driven, and that is uh, just the sheer size of political units. Like uh, state-of-the-art nowadays is pretty well the, the so-called union. Uh, typical example, or top example would be the European, European Union. union. Yep, yep, yep. So, so, so what you're getting now is uh, nation-states merging and, and, and dissolving to some extent their sovereignty, their national sovereignty, uh, giving it up to more uh, union-level sovereignty. And, and there's now, uh, like uh, Angela Merkel, you know, the, the Chancellor of Germany, I mean, she's a few years back was proposing to uh, the US to form a union between the European Union and, and the American Union to become a, a member of the billion club. And what I mean yeah, by that is yeah, yeah. to have a population of a, of a billion people in order to compete with the two giants of India and China. Yeah. So when the unions start unionizing, when the unions start merging, sooner or later, I mean, if, if you extrapolate down the graph of uh, over several centuries of the size of political units, then eventually you're going to get a political unit the size of the earth, right? It's sort of common sense. So you'll, you'll get a global political unit. And I see that coming more or less, if you follow the trend and you, you extrapolate down the graph, more or less linear, you know, the size of political units, then the, the prediction is that this global union, this political planet-wide union, will be occurring more or less in the same kind of time frame, more of the same sort of decade or two as the general rise of AGI. So these these two phenomena will feed into each other, I see, in a very intimate way. Uh, that's what I'm pretty – but I'm not hearing people talk about that. that that's more from me, I think. Yeah, you, you are – you you're in a lonely corner two, there. They're my two main intellectual interests and, until recently. And, and the topics of my, my first two books. The first book was on on the issue of uh, what I call the intellect war. Yep. You know, this this the, the, about the the issue of species dominance. You know, should humanity build intellects? And the second one is about the rise of a global state, uh, but a fully democratic global state, uh, which I label GLOBA, G L O B A. And that, well, if it's GLOBA, then by definition you've got global global governance. governance yeah. And that global state, uh, I believe, its biggest, you know, far and away, its biggest challenge, problem, headache, nightmare, as <laughs> strong as you like, will be the question of species dominance. Frankly, I don't think uh, they will cope with it. You know, longer term, as, as, as these machines become massively intelligent, what on earth is humanity going to do? Yeah, well, and we'll get a little bit into trajectory of intelligence as we sort of roll forward here. In terms of thinking about how a global begins to be approached, or even the pros or cons, I think that when people think about global governance of AI, even if we think near term about privacy, security, data sovereignty, you know, bias and inclusion, the kinds of things that people talk about in AI conversations today, which are all perfectly, you know, valid and important near term issues, there's sort of different gradients. There's an idea of 
maybe we'd have treaties or sort of you know, an idea of principles, like the OECD has their OECD AI principles. There's sort of this light level, hey, we're going to agree to have things develop AI strategies and, and technologies that adhere to these. And then there's sort of really hard international, if we can call it as such, international kind of laws of sorts, sort of where there's some kind of punishments for breaking rules and things get even more stringent than let's say the UN is today. There's even more firm sort of governance. Where do you think sort of in the coming decade, global governance around AI should sit on that continua? On the one side is, hey, we agree to these philosophical principles. On the far other side is hard, enforceable law across country borders. Where does that belong and why in terms of near-term goals and proxies? To be honest, it's not it's not something I've thought hard about. Given my horizons, you know, I tend to be more, more a futurist distant, yeah. more than, distant than a, a present-day sure, yeah. politician. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, you know, if you ask women on the whole, you know, you're interested in politics, and they say, nah. Uh, so day-to-day politics, I'm not terribly interested in. Uh, it's the longer-term stuff. But I'll say this much. I, I'm a great believer in uh, the impact that technologies uh, even in the relatively short term, have on politics. Uh, for example, look, look at the huge impact that uh, the internet has had. I mean, it's as, as impactful as say, uh, the discovery of the, the printing press. And thanks to the printing press, we had the Reformation. And thanks to the Reformation, we had the religious wars <laughs> in the 17th yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. century. All, all that so the rise of uh, the internet, whose speed, by the way, keeps doubling every year. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of that. Uh, that phenomenon I call BRAD, B-R, it's an acronym, B-R-A-D, bit rate. In other words, you know, how many bits can you send down a channel per second? So the bit rate, annual, so every year, doubling. So the speed of the internet is doubling every year, not every year and a half or two years, whatever. So, and, and as a physicist, I don't see any limit to how small you can put a bit of information on like an atom or an electron or a nucleon or a quark <laughs> or a string, whatever. So I see progress being made at the scaling down of, of technologies, you know, information technology, just going down and down and down and down. So I don't see any limit effectively. So every time you double the capacity of your electronics and, and, and that just keeps going, you know, two by two by two by two, two to the 10, you know, two, times two, 10 times, that's a 1,000, and that's 10 years, right, because it's, it's an annual doubling. So 10 years, one decade, is a, is a 1,000 times more powerful, 1,000 times faster internet. So 30 years, that's a billion. And 40 years, so, so well within the lifetime of, of younger people, your, your young, younger listeners and viewers, we will have an internet that is a trillion times faster than what we have today. Now, what are the social and political impacts of that? Because it'll be an utterly different world. With a trillion times faster internet, you'll be able to transmit images in vivid 3D, as real as real, and you'll be able to put all the world's media into the household of everybody. So you could travel the world, you could have access to everything. Uh, well, virtual reality talk. seems super inevitable well, it, at that it, point, right? I mean... Yeah, but it, it, the, the virtual, the V in the virtual reality will get lost. It'll just become people's views. Yes. Reality. Oh, no, no. One, I, I completely agree with that. I think we are going in. We are going in. Yeah, yeah, yeah going in, right. So, and it'll be far more stimulating, interesting. You know, you could travel the universe. Customized <laughs> in every permutation of every, your own every, preferences, right? Yeah, and it'd be as, like, I'm getting a taste of it now. Uh, literally, 
uh, I'm, I'm watching you in, with one screen. Uh, it's a, what, a 66-inch 4K. But to my left, I have an 86-inch 4K, and I, I view it uh, a meter, a meter and a half away, so that uh, pretty well all my visual field, all I see is the screen. I don't see the, you know, the rest of the room. I just yeah, see the screen. Yeah. So in a sense... I'm immersed. You know, that's the technical term yep. that the salesmen use when trying to sell these these things. You're immersed in the image. You're in the image. And with its it's 4K, so it's pretty rich. But because it's 4K, I can still see the pixels. So I'm waiting with great impatience for 8K. Then I'll buy. I'll probably buy one next year. Also, very big screen 8K. And then you can't see the pixels close up. So we're going to get that VR where we get just go into the image. Yep. It's only a year away. As, as the price of 8K falls, then uh, we, we'll, we'll, we'll have that. And uh, you know, the, as the internet keeps getting faster and faster, it'll just change everything. It'll, it'll lead, you know, people will talk to each other much more. Things will be more global. It'll yeah, push more for global language. Ideas will become not geographically correlated, but spread more or less evenly throughout the planet. It'll lead to a cultural homogenization that in turn will allow the creation of a, a global state, hopefully fully democratic, uh, more readily, and so on and so on. And all these developments, largely technologically driven, are occurring more or less in the same time frame as AGI, and your artificial general intelligence, is in parallel. I, I just see the two sets of development uh, going along Pretty well Similar in the same tracks. time frame, yeah, and yeah, yeah, and and interacting strongly with each other, you know, they'll sort of merge. I, we could literally have a whole separate, and at some point, I'm sure I will, a whole separate series on the future of the human experience. That is to say, sort of existing in these VR, BMI enhanced, hyper personalized, mega preferable new realities, which I'm straight ice cold convinced is going to become mm-hmm. massively preferable to most people. But that's a separate conversation. But so I'm going to have to right. can myself there. If you want it more uh, more immediate, uh, I'm sensing, and now I'm not a professional economist. My brother is. Well, he's, <laughs> That's he's close enough. Retired. That's close but, enough, yeah. But I'm getting the feeling that a revolution is going on already amongst economists as, as they wake up to the idea that uh, artificial intelligence truly is polarizing the culture. Technology is having such an impact that uh, – the 99% are getting poorer and poorer relative to the top 1%. Yeah. And it's just getting worse and worse. And this cannot go on. So I sense the economists, and this, this is happening now. There's a flood of books coming out from, you know, from the top names, the top economists. The potential is there to get rid of poverty. You know, we can educate. We have them. Like I myself, as now that I'm retired, I call myself an ARCA, A-R-C after retirement career, and I arc as a verb, as a, a globocator, meaning global educator. I try to educate the planet. I, I have this huge whiteboard in my living room, and I just give lectures in master's and PhD level pure math and math physics. And, and, and the goal of doing this is to provide high-level education, free, right? I just put it on the internet, thousands of uh, lectures on the internet, and now that virtually, you know, soon, a year or two, pretty well everybody on the planet is going to have a smartphone, you know, an internet phone. Yeah, yeah. So, so they, they will have access to, to these kind of free, high-level lectures so they can educate themselves. 
you see this is fitting into the Globa sort of trend here, this idea of, of um, sure. super ubiquitously accessible education in different languages and kind of blending cultures together as you had framed before. Yeah, so this intimate link, you know, growing marriage between uh, advanced technologies and, and politics. It's happening already. Like I lived 12 years in China. Uh, I've only been back in the West a year and a half. And the first few years, I think I must have visited, trained, you know, in a train, through about half of the provinces of China. Mm. A province in China is like a state in the US. And I would look out and see... There are a million villages in China, a million. So that's, that's why Mao Zedong said in World War II, uh, he's famous for saying, uh, the Japanese will never conquer China. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. for a simple reason, there are a million villages. There are like two million You've got to make a soldiers. lot of bullets. That's just so many bullets to manufacture, <laughs> right, you know? Right. <laughs> so, so he calculates, okay, so there's two million Japanese soldiers in China that's two, two soldiers per village. <laughs> I'm sure we can take care of that problem. Yeah. So, so anyway, so traveling through China in, in the train, staring out the window for hours and hours and hours, looking at these villages, these peasants in the villages, they're living now, well, less so now because you know, China's advancing so rapidly, but this is 10 years ago or more, looking at all these paddy fields and these peasants on their oxen in the paddy fields and, and feeling a what, a wa- what a waste, what a tragedy. Because 1% of them is highly intelligent. And, and if they had a smartphone and they, they had access to all these free lectures, they could educate themselves to PhD level, get a good education, and then have millions of them do this. And, of course, what are they going to do? Are they going to sit in the, the non-democratic system that they're currently in. So, so I feel I'm doing my bit in the de-dictation of the planet. Uh, that, that means getting rid of the last dictatorships. And, <laughs> well, and that's once, the big one there. If, yeah. that, if, that, if that happens, uh, and I see that, I see de-dictation as, as a nearer term. I, I see that as only a decade or two decades away. That's, that's relatively near term. So that, that impacts on global governments. So it'll be far more democratic we will live increasingly in a democratic world i mean already over the past half century about half the countries of the world you know about 100 countries have made that switch from one party dictatorships as is still the case in china to multi-party democracies so so that will change the face of the planet when eventually china goes uh, as, as i see happening just to kind of ground us in this idea of bringing things towards a, a global system of governance and a global way of managing artificial intelligence, which as you've brought up, sort of the the potential of that takeoff in the level of intelligence of AI is consequential. I've heard arguments. In fact, I I know your friend Ben Gertzel, from what I recall in previous conversations, is a bit more of a a fan of sort of a, a dispersed idea of maybe different people building different AIs in different parts of the world and that that sort of being able to just have a community of artificial intelligence and, and a degree of freedom there, and that that could be maybe less limiting to freedoms and maybe would be, you know, still a peaceful and prosperous state of affairs in terms of the development of AI in different trajectories in different parts of the world. What are your thoughts there on if there are any pros to that side of the argument or well, if you see it as primarily Oh, oh sure, sure. The longer term stuff I'm talking about, species dominance, that's still decades away. Yeah, three, four, five decades. And I see that also as inevitable because the problem is so difficult. Like 
you know, a lot of people have heard the expression that the most complex thing that we know about uh, in the known, you know, humanly known universe is the human brain. Yeah. Because we have, what, 100 billion neurons, you know, brain cells in our brain, and we have like a quadrillion, that's a thousand trillion connections between the neurons. And so figuring out how all that works is going, you know, it's a huge effort. It, it will take several decades at least. So in that time frame, before uh, we have, you know, truly human-level artificial intelligence, we, we still have a couple of decades. Uh, I see, see that as, you know, virtually certain. So uh, as the machines become smarter and smarter and assuming there's a UBI, so let's assume that problem, you know, that societies become fairer, then uh, you know, we can get rid of poverty. We can educate everybody. We can modify, like there are thousands of genetic diseases in our DNA. We can get rid of all that. Right? You know, our knowledge of how our DNA works, we can just, have you seen the movie Gattaca? Gattaca? Yeah, yeah, long time ago, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, you know, that was about, you know, two guys. One guy's uh, traditionally born faulty, faulty human, and uh, the guy happened to have a physical accident, but he was genetically perfect. Yeah. So you know, there's a lot of positive stuff. I mean, we can extend our life expectancies. The oldest living person around 120 or so, you know, that seems to be the human limit at the moment. But uh, I, I can see, you know, there'll be, Treatments that allow people to live longer, you know, another decade or two or three or four. So you See think that so there's a lot of positive. That in that near but, term, different confluences of AI is perfectly viable before we start actually getting to yeah, and, the bigger and, consequential and need to pull together. There's just sheer economic growth also. You know, there's sheer increase in productivity. You know, just, it just keeps you – know, Compound interest effect every year. Like I noticed, like when I when I moved from China, I lived twelve years in China. When I moved from China to Melbourne, Australia, literally overnight, bam, <laughs> standard living jumped a mile. You know, the internet was like four times faster. You know, Audis and Volkswagens and you know, Mercedes Benz is all over the streets, and people were fat. That's the bad side. of Yeah, that's the yep, the downside but, but, of the first world for sure. But, but yeah. You know, first world problems. So it, it just hit me. So, so there'll be that effect, of course. Just, just shit. And as uh, artificial intelligence feeds more and more into the economy, eventually dominating it, productivity growth will, will be enormous. So people benefit greatly just from just being richer and happier. Like, like economists now, they're talking less about uh, industrial productivity growth. And a lot of them now are going, they're taking the psychological route. Yeah, they're, they're talking, talking about, about happiness. GH. Yeah. GH, gross yeah. happiness. Australia, New Zealand are big, big leaders in, in that conversation, in part yeah. due to Martin Seligman's work out in UPenn. Maybe, because you know, I live here, maybe Australia is sort of lucky. It often gets referred to as the, the lucky country because, uh, fortunately, it's it has enormous mineral wealth. Yep, you, so, you lucked out yeah. there. You got plenty of gold. Uh, a, century, a century ago, I, I was shocked when I first read this, but I guess it's true, that uh, a century or more ago, uh, that in terms of standard of living, so GNP per person, Australia was top. I didn't realize that. And, and the expression then was that Australia lived, here's the quote, sheep's back. In other words, Australia was selling wool in huge quantities to, to Europe and particularly to Britain. You know, and Britain yeah. was number one. 
and, 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 and a very small population, but made a fortune. So the standard of living was, was high. <laughs> and and uh, now I hear today that in median, not average, but median wealth, Australia is still number one. So in Good some ways, it's a, rather, it's, it's a rather fortunate country, but also on the downside, it's not, a, it's not a sage country. It's not an intellectual's country. So if you're an intellectual and you're playing with ideas, uh, I recommend don't migrate to Australia. <laughs> but if you like good weather and, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and kangaroos. Yeah, physically, sure. If it, well, actually, that's one of the myths. Australia is one of the most urbanized countries on the planet. I think it's about 60 or 70% household private household uh, ownership rate it's very high so this is around sort of the the near term economic concerns for global governance around artificial intelligence you know clearly in your perspective as a artificial general intelligence becomes more powerful there will be a conversation of how are we going to handle this and should we do this and how do we steer this and that that will be forced to be a global convo i think that's an argument people can digest we think about the near term about the economic inequalities that artificial intelligence could create. Will there be need for global confluence around those kinds of new policies? In other words, will the whole of the EU need to say, hey, this is the way we need to treat unemployment now? Or will the United States and other countries have to work together to say, here's a new economic system? Will there be a pull towards a global governance just from the economic effects of AI, in your opinion? That's not obvious to me. It's not pres- like, For example, I have a pile of books here on socialism. I just happen to be reading that topic at the moment. But at the bottom of that pile is a book entitled, and it struck me when I first saw the, the title in the bookshop, I said, oh, oh, that looks interesting. So here's the title, Fully Automated Luxury, Luxury. Communism. Yep. Yeah, I see that's, that's where things are going. The 1%, 99% uh, polarity problem is now pressing. Uh, you could even you could even argue that the, the 2020 American election is sort of over this issue. Mm, yeah, uh, yeah, that's safe to say. So, so I see that uh, in a, in the short term as uh, being very important, and so economists and politicians need to think hard about that issue because it's going to be it'll be explosive if it's not tackled, and within five years, otherwise, you know, there'll be riots. I mean, so is pushing the the potential luxury you know, because of productivity growing and growing. Uh, see, initially, uh, well, the European Union will probably, as a union, try to tackle these issues. America is a union. I mean, I, I heard Americans arguing <laughs> they've been a union for two centuries longer than Europe. Yeah, so, yeah. And in a sense, they're, they're right. The so United America States, a, yes. We're the United uh, States. America is a union in its own right you know, and the third largest population country in the world. So you can see these blocks, if you like, political blocks, more or less quasi independently uh, trying to solve these problems, but of course they'll be you know, amongst the intellectuals thinking about these problems. Of course they'll be, you know, especially with the internet, they'll be thinking yeah. and influencing each other. So in in that sense, it'll be more global, but, but politically global, you know, in terms of sovereignty, you know, political power, yeah, militaries, yeah, and yeah, that. yeah. I, I don't see that happening. You, You're not in the short term. So for you, but it'll, you, it'll take longer. That pressure, the pressure towards an actual kind of potentially hard law global governance around AI will really be when it's existential, when it's about the power well, of the machines being a, a global issue. You've got the global warming issue. Yep. That's pushing hard for that because it's a global problem. Yeah. And you can't solve it locally. Like uh, 
well, if you live in California, <laughs> you're getting China's pollution, right? Yep. This kind of thing. So there is an an impetus, a, a momentum pushing in that way that, that it has this huge issue, global issue, literally planetary issue, has to be tackled in, in a planetary way. And and, and the United Nations, uh, you know, the Paris Accords and all, you know, all that stuff, that's in that direction. So I see that increasing. Perhaps... Uh, if men, uh, young men are refusing to marry nowadays because of the divorce problems. So if, if they do that in large numbers, that will solve the global warming problem <laughs> because we'll wipe ourselves out. I guess that's... Well, so long as it's just a, a generation or two, then that's fine because we are overcrowded. So, yeah, so long as we don't do it so much that there's none of us to, to hang out and yeah, enjoy the exactly. fruits of it. But yeah, yeah, no, I, there's, yeah, there's... Exactly. Hopefully, so well, that, that, yeah. maybe that'll need a global government to control. <laughs> because what if what if there's too much momentum? Like, have you heard in uh, South Korea, the birth uh, rates are remarkably birth, low, yeah, right? Yeah, the birth rate in South Korea now is the world's lowest, as far as I know, under one child per yeah, woman. Yeah, So Korea, South Korea, will wipe itself out you know, at the rate of uh, half the population per generation. Japan's not doing great either. Japan, in that yeah. Well, in a lot of a lot of countries, Japan. Well, maybe I need to update my, my numbers, but uh, Japan, uh, Italy, Spain, uh, yep. yeah, they're, they're about 1.3. They're, they're just bowing out. They're bowing out. Yeah, yeah we're just yeah. wiping ourselves out. So Yeah. Well, I mean, I, maybe on some level a little bit less people will be good, but it sounds like yeah. I, I think that the core takeaway here is that uh, from your perspective in terms of governance, there is the economic near-term consideration, and then there is the longer-term right. consideration to bear in mind that as these systems potentially get much more powerful, we'll have to deal with that as a species writ large, and hopefully for the policy folks who are tuned in. That's yeah, a and, and I think on. that yeah, I agree. That's a good summary. But I do think that warning is needed. That is, uh, the warning is to the planet, especially the planetary politicians. Don't get so preoccupied by the immediate, like you know, the the wealth distribution and uh, unemployment and, and that kind of thing. Don't get so preoccupied that you just neglect and forget about the much bigger, hugely bigger, looming problem of species dominance. You know, what on earth are we going to do when our machines are smarter than us? Because it's not so far away, like you were saying yourself, 2060s, you know, yeah, yeah. mere four decades away, that's well within the lifetime of, of many millions, listeners, many listeners, even a billion yeah. or more of your younger readers this has to be thought about now because it's it's so huge and that's indeed the the purpose of the series is to trickle in the ideas of the more distant future to kind of get that to be part of the private sector and policy conversation hugo that's exactly what we've done today on this episode so thank you so yeah. much for being so able maybe to be here. Uh, a relabeling uh, labels can be very important and huh. instead of saying longer term you know people hear the term longer term and they just switch and they say off. okay so, maybe oh, i can forget I about, it. about it yeah okay so go let's ahead just call it Maybe just call it middle term. Middle term. 40 years, middle term. All right. For the yeah. folks tuned in, consider the middle term. We're not talking about I mean, something so far if away. You're, if you're middle-aged. Yeah, you're, you're in what, your 40s. 40s yeah. 40s, 50s, right? You're not middle-aged yet. <laughs> not, not yet. <laughs> by the time you are. <laughs> yeah, I'll be thinking about this time, stuff. By the yeah. time you're my age, seriously, but yep. you, you what? Your early thirties. Yeah. So I'm early, early seventies. So yep. a four decade difference. By the time you're my age, I really believe this issue of species dominance will be raging, yep. raging. Yeah. There'll be assassinations. There'll, there'll you know, artificial brain companies will be sabotaged, and and politicians who are strongly in favor of making these machines they'll be assassinated. Oh, 
there'll be a war brewing. That's the, that's my personal middle term. <laughs> yeah, considerations <laughs> there. Yeah, and those of you who haven't uh, read it, Hugo's book is the Artelect War is is one of his works uh, worth reading if you're interested in these distant yeah. kind of conflicts. You can, you can read it for free. Just download it from my internet. Just Google my name or just just the term Artelect. You'll find me. Just remember one keyword and you can find me. Yeah. And then you can read the book. Or you read all my books. Uh, free PDF on, online. Yep, art yeah, like they're, they're all on my website. Hugo, thank you so much for being able to be with us here in the interview. Well, Dan, it's been fun. Well, I hope you've enjoyed that one. A little bit different than what we normally cover in the AI and business podcast, obviously, not exactly business topics today, but the purpose of this series was to stretch our listeners, those of you who are interested anyway, in thinking about the near-term implications of AI going all the way to the longer-term considerations. Where are we ultimately taking ourselves? That's what this AI Future series was supposed to be about. I'm considering spinning this off as its own program or potentially keeping it as a special Saturday series when we build up a kind of corpus of interviews on particular future topics. I've got a couple other topics I'm thinking about in the near term, but I'd love your thoughts. Do you want to keep this as part of the AI and Business Podcast on Saturdays so you can listen when you want, or would you prefer it to be a separate show? Let me know. You can go to emerj.com slash pod3, that's pod as in podcast, emerj.com slash pod and then the number three. That's going to take you to literally a two-question survey. How do you want us to do these AI Futures episodes moving forward? What do you like about them? What do you not like about them? What kind of topics would you like to see covered? And you know, would you like it to, to remain part of this program or to be broken off as its own thing? Your ideas matter. Those of you who have given us survey feedback about the podcast in the past, you have seen that feedback come to life. And I know it. And that's over the last two or three years as we've done more and more surveys with our loyal listeners as our fan base has grown here. So I'd appreciate your thoughts there. And I hope you've enjoyed this series. We're going to be getting back into AI use cases next Tuesday, so you can look forward to our regularly scheduled business content. And thanks for joining us on this first ever round of AI Futures here on the AI and Business Podcast. 